Hello again, this is Chris Didier, Managing Director with the Baird Family Wealth Group. I'm here today with Brian Bolio. Uh, we are following up from the webinar that we held uh, this past week on May 18th, and we will be uh, finishing up on answering the questions as promised, and there were a lot of really good questions, so we didn't have time during the webinar to get to all of them, and so we wanna make sure that you uh, get the answers to those. So I'm Brian, gonna start with, um, you know, just kind of go down the list of questions that were remaining that we didn't get to. And uh, first, I wanna thank you again for, uh, for doing this. I, I know it's uh, kind of above and beyond because uh, we're taking extra time to go through this, so we really appreciate it, and I know um, all of the people that attended the webinar and that asked the questions are, will be appreciative of you taking the time to follow up with them. So thank you very much for that. My pleasure. Um, so let me start. So you moved up the prediction. Um, you haven't moved up the prediction for, for the big crash. And you went through your, your views on, on what you see coming in the world. And um, we've already sent a summary out to, to everyone on that. Um, but when you're looking at the 2030s period of time, you know, what will be the signal that that's coming? Will this, the, the question actually is, what, will the stock market be the first signal? I don't know what will be the first signal. Uh, I really don't. It could be uh, Japan. Uh, it could be the debt issues in China. Uh, it could be a financial crisis in um, Russia that um, just like it did back in 87, ripple around the world. Um, it's hard to know um, whether it would be the stock market or interest rates are pushed so high um, for various and sundry reasons. And that's what makes the stock market. You know, it's the cam, uh, the straw, right? I don't know uh, what the final one will be, and I really don't know who's going to lead the camel into the pen at this time. Sorry. What, what signals should we look for? When everybody's confident that uh, everything's all right, by everybody I mean the political leaders, and um, they feel fully justified in continuing with MMT and spending and just taxing away. Um, and we have not experienced any real pain from that yet. Um, that's when you really start getting worried. And when the mantra becomes, this time it's different, that's when you know we're, we're cooked. Um, because it's, there's never a time in history where it's been different. It's just a, it's a, it's a question of timing. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. As to the specific uh, road signs, uh, Chris and David, who asked this question, uh, you got to give me some more time. You got to give me. Uh, you got to give me time to get closer to uh, the end of the story, please. Right, because I mean, the, what you described. I mean, people not thinking that there's an issue that we can continue with the current policies forever. That we can. Um, that the sky is the limit on. Uh, uh, what the Federal Reserve can do and what Congress can do. I mean, that exists right now. What changes over the next 10 years or so that makes that, I mean, does it get more extreme than where we are even today? Yes, I think so. This is the beginning. Okay, so you mentioned uh, during the webinar that you were going to be working on a, a follow-up. I don't know if it was a new book or a presentation that you and the folks at ITR are working on. Can you let us know, um, you know, maybe uh, some insights as to when that's coming or when we might be able to expect something from that? Or, or um, can we sign up for uh, an event that you might have coming up? Or what, what's, what's going on with that? I'm just curious. 
Well, thank you for asking that particular question. That's very nice of you. I'm looking for uh, the date that it's going to be as we uh, are talking. It's going to be on July 22 at 2 p.m. Alan and I are doing a webinar called The Coming Great Depression, Impact of uh, Pertinent Trends a Year into the Pandemic. And for the first time ever, we are going to provide a quantitative outlook of what we think the depression is gonna look like, not here, only here in the United States, but globally. And by quantitative outlook, I mean how deep, how long, um, just what will this thing look like? It'll include GDP, industrial production, and uh, prices by virtue of the CPI. Uh, so it's a very long range forecast, which is dangerous to do because people tend to think it's uh, you know, casting granite, but we're just trying to give some people some context to wrap their minds around when it comes to this. And pertinent to today's trends is because what the government is doing, and I'm not arguing whether it was necessary or not, that's, that's for historians to argue. I'm, I'm more concerned about the future. And what they're doing is clearly building up this inflation potential far greater than otherwise existed. And that's, that's a game changer. And all this deficit spending is going to lead to a weaker dollar, as you and I have discussed, Chris. And that has ramifications for where we invest our money. And it clearly has ramifications for, uh, again, future inflation. And then I throw on top of that, we have an administration that is really working hard to stimulate job creation, while also fighting against themselves by talking about indefinitely extending the additional stipend for being unemployed. We can't find people as it is with the skills that we need, yet the government is creating additional demand at the same time there is a restricted supply, real and uh, facilitated by the government. That's going to be, uh, I mean, I didn't see that coming. That's, an, that's a phenomenon that's going to add even more inflation in the future. We saw the shortage of talent, but we didn't see the government exacerbating that situation the way that they are. So, so David followed up with another question um, related to what you were talking about in terms of uh, currency to a certain extent. What are the chances a new currency will replace the dollar? Well, I think the chances are high as long as you understand that that new currency means uh, there'll probably be a digitized U.S. dollar as opposed to one that you hold your hand, uh, holding your hand, at least you'll have that opportunity. The Federal Reserve is working on that research right now. Uh, I think the Chinese going to a digitized uh, one is, is pushing them along. So we'll see what their research paper looks like this summer, but we are, you know, we're at least four to five years away from that becoming anything like a reality in, in our opinion. Uh, based on the technology and the restrictions that are currently in place. But as far as a foreign currency knocking the U.S. dollar off its perch, uh, those prospects are exceedingly low. So during the webinar, Brian, I provided uh, a little bit of, of um, our view, or my view anyway, on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Um, and I felt super smart because the, the very next day, or actually overnight and then through the next day, uh, Bitcoin dropped 20% and all the other currencies, uh, cryptos got hit as well. Um, but bouncing around, I mean, who knows what the long term is with that. But there's a, um, a specific question, you know, what are your thoughts on the emerging crypto market? 
my thoughts are it's very much like when I used to play with penny stocks. There wasn't a whole lot of rationality uh, to it. It's just where you go with your fund money. You know, there's a Newsweek piece today uh, supporting what you were saying, Chris. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies went from trendy to tacky, it seems like, overnight. Um, and if the governments like China and the United States are going to have digitized domestic currency, then the utility of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies remains limited as it is today. And it remains where you go to try and make a quick buck. But as you and I define investments, uh, Chris, a store of value, something that uh, is rational uh, as opposed to a momentum play, I wouldn't recommend anybody diversifying out of their traditional investments into crypto unless it's just fun money. You know, one of the things that um, I've been thinking about and puzzled about with uh, crypto is if there was ever a loss of power. I mean, so uh, just mining Bitcoin, and that's one of the things that uh, Elon Musk brought up as a reason to get out of Bitcoin because uh, it is, is extremely energy efficient. It takes a lot of energy um, to mine a, a single Bitcoin, a lot of electricity. But if you had all of your wealth on a crypto and suddenly there was a power outage, how would you spend any money? You wouldn't have, I mean, would you have to go out and get a box of cigarettes as a, as a, as a currency? Or, you know, I wonder if that's something that keeps ultimately like uh, hard currency or paper money from actually completely going away. Well, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, it would have to be a pretty, not pretty, it would have to be a very significant blackout because the servers running blockchain would have to be down. But eventually your phone's going to run out of energy, right? And if you don't have your phone and the servers are down, then you are good and truly out of luck and you better be looking at a barter system <laughs> like you just alluded right. to. Interesting thought. Yeah. Okay. So, so as we're thinking about like out in the future, I want to ask one, one further question about that because um, I get a lot of questions from people concerned about the coming changes in the tax regime. Uh, whether the U.S. government will get to a place of, of confiscation if we're becoming uh, a, totalitarian, a totalitaristic state. And in that environment, you know, where is there a place around the world that people might think about or where would they go? I mean, I know in today's world, the U.S. Uh, taxes worldwide income and worldwide assets. And so there's, there's no way to really uh, legally escape the U.S. government. I wouldn't encourage anybody to try to work around that. But where would somebody, if they were saying, hey, I no longer want to be a U.S. citizen, I want to legally uh, go out of the country, where, is there some place you think that they, they should go? I think of it more in the context of uh, my kids rather than me because there's inherent difficulties in getting your wealth out of the country, right? So I would encourage my kids to maybe be in Switzerland or Sweden or even Canada. And I know those are all high tax environments, but when you look at the net tax and the probabilities of higher taxation in the future, uh, the U.S. comes up short in that measure. So if it was really a standard of living and... Um, some tax stability as opposed to moving toward that dreadful state that you mentioned, uh, I wouldn't be encouraging my kids to look there. And then I'd be encouraging them to build their wealth in those markets. Okay. So another individual was asking for um, some planning tips on how to protect wealth uh, specifically from you um, regarding the, the forecast for the 2030s. Is that something that you're going to be addressing in the um, 
the, the, the webinar later this summer? Uh, to a certain extent, uh, but Chris, that's, that, I mean, I'm flattered that the person wanted to hear from me, and thank you, Gerald, but uh, you and I agree totally uh, on, on this, so I would just echo your advice, uh, so, and you, and you delivered that during our webinar, so I really don't have anything more to add. I mean, we're on the same okay. page. Okay, great. Um, so next question. So how can CPI be increasing at such a small percentage when the cost of gas, lumber, steel, housing, groceries, and even a burrito at Chipotle <laughs> have increased substantially more in the last few quarters? Are we at risk of hyperinflation in the next several years? Okay. Uh, answering the first question uh, first, uh, I was just looking at the CPI in relation to not all of these things, but lumber, housing. Uh, transportation. I didn't look at food because food inflation is generally non-existent right now compared to those others. Um, those are all, I mean, if you're talking about lumber, steel, those are input costs, right? So that's what businesses have to contend with. And it gets diluted by the time it gets into the CPI because businesses are going to pass through only that percentage of say the, the roof truss for the new house, which is extremely expensive uh, right now, but that's not the cost of the whole house. So there's some dilution there. And the CPI doesn't track housing. It uses a rental equivalency. So it's not going to track home prices, particularly resale prices uh, well at all. Uh, in terms of the cost of gas, if that means gasoline, we were looking at that uh, earlier this morning also. And Chris, you and I have talked about how the, the liquidity in the oil and gas industry is, shall we say, fragile right now. And that could become problematic. Um, but in terms of the surge that we've seen, you gotta remember a year from now, we are in the midst of COVID. So any comparisons to one year ago are going to be what we call reciprocal pressure driven. Uh, those prices were pandemically low back then. Uh, even with lumber prices, when we were looking at that today, our director of economics pointed it out to me. Uh, she looked at it and she goes, you know, lumber prices were lower than where they should have been when you look at the context of the last 15 years. Part of what we're going through is simply the normalization of these prices. And that happens over time in economics, right? There's that longer cycle. Uh, their commodities can be undervalued for a long period of time. Then they swing up and they become overvalued because they always swing that equilibrium point. And that's what we're going through today. But even when you overswing that equilibrium point, the rate of inflation diminishes. The price doesn't come down. The rate of inflation diminishes. And therefore, you see a decreasing impact on the CPI going forward. It's part of why we think um, the surge in the CPI that we mentioned in our webinar, Chris, uh, is transient. Coupled with, uh, the, and this is part of the answer to hyperinflation in the next several years, uh, the Federal Reserve is not seeing any hyperinflation and that's an organization full of very smart people. And I think Probably more importantly, as I read the bond market tea leaves, and I'm pretty good at reading the bond market tea leaves, the bond market is not anticipating any inflation, let alone hyperinflation. 
And I'm not seeing it in my own analysis. So I've got a three-legged stool here that says, no, don't worry about hyperinflation uh, ever, particularly not in the next several years. You said something interesting during the uh, webinar, and you talked about um, you know consumers and businesses having a lot of cash on, I mean, like you know, enormous amounts of, of cash in aggregate, um, and that they could withstand um, some higher prices without it, it becoming uh, too big of an issue and that's you know one reason that you know you suggested that business owners might want to try to raise uh their prices if they could when you think of uh and you, you said you were just at itr looking at gas prices today when you think of you know gas prices over the summer is there a level that you came up with that you know would be you know select at three dollars a gallon four dollars a gallon five dollars a gallon is there a level where people start to freak out about that I did not do the analysis to come up with a uh, dollar level, but where I went to was uh, my uh, two of my son-in-laws that just went out and bought huge pickup trucks to pull their huge fifth wheel trailers, campers. Uh, they're going to go nuts if those diesel prices go up that high. Uh, and they're going to blame it on uh, Biden and, and the Democrats, at least one of them will. Uh, but it's a systemic issue. Uh, clearly, there are administrative political issues that are exacerbating the situation, but you can't lay it all on the, at the doorstep of uh, Washington. Uh, the banks are heavily involved and societal pressures are involved also. Will people freak out about it? Yeah, they're gonna freak out about it, but uh, will it change the course of um, where we go as a country? No, not so much. We, we've been there before, right? And it just drives them move toward, uh, no pun intended, uh, the electric vehicles, which is what this administration wants. So I don't think they're going to mind these higher prices, as opposed to some other administrations that thought higher gasoline or diesel prices was anathema to our well-being. This administration may even want that to happen, as I think it through while we're talking here, Chris. Okay. So Jacob is asking, how will inflation affect the stock market specifically? Chris, I think you, you know, you're a better student of the stock market. Um, how about you take that one? So we talked a little bit about this on the webinar, and this is one of the reasons why we um, are suggesting the tilt uh, more towards the value side of the market than the growth side. And so inflation historically is very bad for growth stocks such as uh, technology. Um, and that's because the, the market is inherently a discounter of future cash flows. And when those cash flows way out in the future, you know, are being discounted by what would be uh, higher interest rates along with the higher inflation, um, it suggests lower uh, values for that. The other thing is, is that while in the short run, uh, the ability to move prices up makes uh, stocks somewhat of a inflation hedge. There's a point where businesses can't move their prices up as fast as what, you know, inflation can happen. And therefore there's some margin pressure that, that happens along the way. And so again, that affects uh, the growth side of the market. Value side of the market will perform better in that environment just because higher interest rates are beneficial for the banks as we've talked about. So that's how I would answer that. Uh, Lauren's asking, uh, the outlook for commercial real estate, uh, what will rents look like, vacancy rates, future for commercial real retail development, et cetera? Uh, commercial real estate is a really broad category. And um, if, if we could have an active discussion uh, to 
define that, it'd be better because commercial real estate is everything from, for some people, retail to even warehousing, uh, office space. Some people lump all of that together. So let me try and just break it down uh, a little bit. We're looking at real estate pricing that pretty much across the board was hit pretty hard because of the pandemic. But we're seeing some cyclical recovery uh, uh, in most spots also. But it's not going to lead to investment grade rise when you look at some things like retail lodging. Uh, it's just not going to happen. If you want investment grade rise in commercial areas, you've got to look at uh, multifamily rental units. Not today. I'm talking about uh, six to 12 months from now. Uh, you want to look at storage units. You want to look at uh, medical. Uh, those are going to be uh, where you're going to get investment grade appreciation on pricing in, in those markets. Rents are going to be going up in the future once we are clear of the uh, pandemic ramifications. Because when you're in an inflationary environment, rents clearly are going to reflect that inflation unless there's more and more uh, restricted rent increases. Uh, coming from the government. And owning those multifamily uh, dwelling units, it's not a bad strategy going into the 2030s. Uh, in the right population areas, people still need a place to live. And if you're cash flow positive by a wide margin going into that period, you're probably better off owning that than a third home uh, that you are currently renting out to uh, a wealthy individual. So the... Um Residential real estate market, I know during the webinar you talked about, you know, how positive things are there. Um, I don't know that we specifically said or you specifically said when you expected that to soften. And then we talked about when a business owner should sell their business. Can you, can you provide a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of color on that? I know they're trying to pin you down a little bit on that. Yeah, yeah. Remember we talked about the uh, general recession perhaps beginning late 2025 and encompassing all of 26 that's in those summary notes right um, with housing leading uh, we expect to see that softening or a correction slow down and build a reversal actually and build and a reversal in price but a business cycle reversal not uh, anything catastrophic like 2006 through 2011 uh, in that 2025-2026 time frame, keeping in mind that housing leads uh, GDP and industrial activity, there it gets whacked and really whacked hard when the inflation cycle is, is burst out there around 2030-2031. That's when you find real estate not softening but really getting struck. Um, Dean is wondering if productivity from those working from home changed from the beginning of the pandemic to now. I don't know. Uh, I, I honestly don't know. I haven't read anything about that. And for, I can only speak to my own team. And the issues we've been having is, you know, encouraging them to get away from their computers, actually take a lunch. Um, and to the extent that we're successful in doing that so they don't get burned out, I guess their productivity has slipped. But at the same time, we're making sure that they have better tools. So if, if my little company is um, like others who have a distributed workforce, then I'd say it's a better balance, but their productivity is actually higher uh, for the hours that they are working. But I don't know about the country as a whole. 
Yeah, I'm not sure that we have actual data on that, but like something that might be a, a guidepost. So there was an article, and I think it was in today's uh, New York Times, uh, might have been the Wall Street, but I think it's New York Times, that at the beginning uh, part of the pandemic and survey information, it was something like 50% of CEOs um, believed that workers would stay at home. And I think the Times article uh, today says that number is now 17%. So if there was this thought that there was a lot of productivity at the beginning of the pandemic and so people could stay at home, there must be reasons why those same CEOs are now uh, changing the, the tune on that. So that could be a, some barometer of, of what the view on that is. Yeah, absolutely. I know I have some uh, people that are going to be coming back into the office now that they're immunized because there's too many distractions at home and they want to come in. But they've been very productive while they're at home. So I don't know that there's a productivity as much as a sanity element at work for them. Cheryl's asking a question about the, the you know, what are the probabilities of a 99.5% Bernie bill going through inside the infrastructure stimulus? Yeah, Chris, I had to ask you what the 99.5% Bernie bill was. So how about you answer that one? You're, I, from our conversation, getting ready for this, you are much more in tune with this than I am. Well, the 99.5% um, comes from uh, the idea that 99.5% shouldn't have to pay the increased tax, uh, half a percent should. And I'm not exactly sure how the numbers tie out, but what that means is anybody with an estate over $3.5 million uh, would have to pay the 40% uh, estate tax. And, you know, they could try to broaden out the estate tax. There would be a lot of resistance to that because Historically, anytime you start taxing family farms on estate taxes, um, you, be, you get a, uh, a big pushback. And so it, it has trouble of that kind of thing going through. We're more concerned about the step up in basis going away, which really would present a, um, a big tax uh, for, for everyone. And if you're not familiar with the step up in basis, that's essentially... Uh, if you have stock that is uh, has a basis of zero and it's suddenly worth $100 and you pass away and leave that to your heirs, they get uh, there's no capital gains uh, tax at your death. There, there may be an estate tax depending on how big your estate is. Um, but your heirs get a step up to that $100 and so they, they won't pay any capital gains if they sell it at that $100. If they hold on to it, they'll pay um, whatever capital gains are on the growth above 100. Um, if you think about like biggest states, that, that's a whole, you know, that's a, another death tax and it's a, you know, automatic uh, triggering of capital gains at your death. And so between paying an estate tax of about 40% and paying what could be a capital gains tax if uh, Joe Biden gets his way for the, the million dollars and up, you could have another 44% tax on that estate, and that would be, you know, really, really a big deal. We don't think that that's going to be something that that gets in in there. But you know, when I ask people about it, a lot of a lot of folks aren't aware that that's part of the uh, the proposal right now. And so, you know, hopefully more more folks become aware of that, and uh, you know, that does not get through. But that's something we are watching. Um, I think uh, we have uh, just a, a couple more questions here, Brian, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. The, what is the likely impact of the, this is from uh, Charlie, what is the likely impact in U.S. economic projections, direct economic and uh, psychological, if or when uh, a virus variant 
uh, evades present uh, uh, vaccine technology and spreads uh, throughout the U.S. specifically and, and possibly the world. Uh, I fully expect that uh, that happens, Charlie. We're going to be looking at uh, our, our replay of uh, 1Q and a milder version of 2Q 2020. They're just going to pull out that playbook, particularly given uh, the current political structure in the United States. You'll find that we're all of what we've been accomplishing and moving forward is uh, scratched, and uh, we go back down. So you think we shut down pretty quickly in that environment? Yep, I do. But you know, when that happened last year, you know, it was a blip down. It was a great opportunity to, to buy stocks. I mean, economically, we really didn't feel anything. I mean. Wouldn't the Fed and the federal government just you know, respond with more stimulus? Gosh, I hope not, but they probably would. But I like your first point. Uh, if that happens, uh, take a breath, find out how much cash you can get hold of. And uh, when the market reaches near its low or when the optimizer is signaling that we're at the low, you just go into that market hard because it will rebound. So Charlie's asking also, I mean, you know, understanding that you um, and ITR don't, you know, you, you do comment on, um, you know, the financial markets and the stock markets and, and some of the material out of ITR, but typically, you know, you're more focused on the overall economy or, or how the market is as a signal for the overall economy. But how, how fragile in your opinion or resilient for that matter, uh, do you view the stock market to be at today's current high prices? Uh, that's a, that's a funny question because it gets and I'm going back to where you were a few minutes ago. If we're talking about technology stocks, very fragile. I, I don't want to be in them. But if you're talking about value stocks, you know there's that sector rotation going on. Uh, so it's hard to talk about the overall market. Uh, I will tell you this: the uh, money supply shift uh, in the 112 rate of change for M2. The newest data came out after we did our webinar and it's reverse direction. So that means the countdown is on. Uh, and it could be a year from now, it could be three years from now before uh, this, that gets reflected in the stock market. If the Federal Reserve continues with its uh, uh, deceleration of M2 growth. So how fragile is it? Depends on the sector. In terms of the overall market, I think there's still some resiliency there. Uh, simply because of the liquidity that is uh, still out there. Uh, I think this overall market can be climbing a wall of worry for a while. Uh, you're going to see more and more bear prognosticators coming out of the woodwork, I think, over the next one, two, three years. Um, and Chris, you know that that's pretty much par for the course. It's very hard to time this market, which is why you have to be trimming some risk. I love that expression of yours. You know, take some risk out of your portfolio rather than get out of the market. Right. And then you don't have, I mean, by doing that, our view has always been that that provides you the opportunity to put money in when things are going down. And from a psychological standpoint, I mean, I've seen this uh, firsthand that when people are fully invested in a down market, they have a tendency to sell at the wrong times because it's human nature if the house is on fire to run for the door. If you actually have some cash on the sidelines and you're looking to buy, or you're looking for the opportunity, you change that psychology quite a bit. And then it's like, we're, wow, we're buying in at this opportunity. We're not looking so much at what we've lost. We're looking more at what we can gain uh, by putting money into the market. And it's a, 
you know, it, it's a, it's a pretty powerful thing uh, that you, know, you can build into your own portfolios and, you know, works, works for our clients. So with that, Brian, and um, I'd love to hear just some, you've got some parting words of wisdom um, until next time. Um, and we'll uh, look forward to the, the uh, webinar on the 20, uh, 2030s this summer. And, you know, I'll let it to you to say something uh, to the folks that are listening. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. And thanks for allowing me to participate, not only on this, but in the webinar itself. I think given where we are, in, in the cycle, the price cycle, the business cycle, the euphoric stock market. It's very hard when you're in this sort of an environment to avoid linear extrapolation, but that's exactly what we need to do. We can't take what's been going on for the last six months and say that's what the next six months or the next 12 months will look like. Um, one of the questions we got was about the chip shortage. Um, the chip shortage is going to be with us to varying degrees till mid-2022, but the capacity build is already going on. It was a fundamental imbalance between having the right chip boundaries and matching demand, and now they're playing catch-up, and that's a, it's a multi-year process. But like for automobiles, that, that should be mitigated by mid-2022, or at least the end of 2022 which will decrease their tendency to get into supply and demand imbalance for rapacious pricing. This is the time where you want to avoid assuming that the current imbalances are going to last ad nauseum into the future. And that ties in with inflation being transitory at this time. That's a key part of the thinking. I think if we're going to get into the right mindset of what to expect going forward. Stock market is a, is a funny beast, right? But uh, it, I use the, uh, the bond market there as well. And, and bond market is sleeping well at night. Right now, I'm going to be sleeping well at night too, Chris. And I encourage other people to be uh, doing the same. We, my biggest concern for businesses out there, not for this year only or the next year only, but for the next eight years is managing that profit margin. You, I, I ran across so many businesses that don't seem to grasp right now that their revenue growth is not the issue. Managing to maintain that profit margin and grow that profit margin is going to be a bear. Uh, and eventually that leads to higher consumer price inflation. But until you can get that business to that environment where consumers will readily accept those price increases, um, your profitability is going to be tough to grow. And if you're a publicly traded company, obviously that has implications for uh, your share prices once fundamental reality resumes for the stock market. Okay, Brian, thank you very much um, again and look forward to uh, uh, having you back uh, um, maybe in the fall, but in the meantime, uh, um, People can certainly uh, see you on one of the other webinars, but you know, to everybody listening, thank you for attending. If you, if there's a question that came up that we didn't answer, um, we provided the, our emails. Um, mine is C Didier D I D I E R at R W Baird.com. Brian, please provide yours. It is Brian B R I A N at I T R. 
economics.com. And uh, Chris, uh, well, we may not be doing another webinar. Who knows when we said the fall, and I hope we are. Um, I want everybody to know you and I talk all the time. We just don't talk during these webinar programs. So uh, um, I look forward to talking to you uh, multiple times between now and I, I absolutely look forward to talking to you uh, very soon, Brian. And so all of you take care. Uh, we will uh, see you next time.